Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Calvary. Uh, as, uh, as is fairly obvious, I am not Pastor Rick. He is a much better looking uh, man than I. But uh, I want to welcome you again to Calvary Chapel Okinawa. Uh, as mentioned, uh, thank you, Josh, for that warm introduction. I'm James Block. I'm a Navy chaplain here uh, on Camp Foster, covering several different units, while Rick and Christy are back stateside visiting friends and family. And in true fashion, guess what we're going to do next? We're going to pray. Please join me. Gracious Father, the world is becoming ever more hostile towards you and your word. As such, we find ourselves often the targets of ridicule, exclusion, <clears throat> verbal hostility, and even violence, simply for standing for the gospel. But this should come as no surprise. Jesus warned us that these things would happen, telling us of this before he went back to be with you. Nonetheless, we have encouragements, which we need, encouragements like today's passage, to keep us from losing our focus, or from becoming discouraged. And so, Father, prepare our hearts to hear and to act upon your word. May it be the truth that drives us and not our feelings. May you be glorified through today's service. Amen. All right. Now, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, just go ahead and shoot your hand up in the air. We've got our ushers coming through. They'd be happy to provide you with one. Okay. okay, now seeing that we're all properly armed, chaplain, non-combatant joke, sorry. Uh, if you would all please stand and join me uh, in honor of God and his word, um, and I'll read our passage for everyone together. Again, we're looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody, in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful creator. And before you take your seats, uh, turn to a couple people around you, welcome them, greet them, and then we'll get started. All right. Over the past few months, we've been following Peter on a journey. He's writing to encourage fellow Christians, and Peter reminds them to not give up, to stay the course no matter what comes. And he does this by peppering them repeatedly with truths that they need to hear, and so do we, even this day. Peter beats the drum. We are temporary residents. We, God has called us to sojourn. 
We're passing through just as Jesus told us in the Gospel of John. We are to be in this world, but yeah, that's right, not of it, because this world is not our home. And so in today's passage, Peter does for us the most loving thing possible when he invites us to embrace the suck, right? Some of you got the joke, okay? For those who maybe not of the military uh, persuasion, embracing the suck is a term that has to do with leaning into difficult times, kind of embracing them, not shying away from them, but rather seeing the obstacle as the pathway to the goal, okay? Now, as Pastor Kevin shared with us over these last two weeks, we must live now with the end in mind as we love others because only when we do these two things correctly can we actually carry out our most vital mission, to live to the glory of God. And I believe that today's passage gives us three touch points that will help us to embrace the suck in order to satisfy this most vital mission. And Peter is going to give us, again, in these three touch points, this first one, uh, verses 12 through 16, he's going to call us to consider him, to set our eyes on Christ. Verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. As the letter of 1 Peter has shown us time and again, for the Christian, persecution tends to be part of life. In fact, if you look at the Bible on the whole, for all of the people of God, persecution is a part of life. Why is that? Well, we live in a world that has been and remains broken by sin. This world is ruled by the devil, and he is opposed to the plans of God, the will of God, and as such, the people of God. And because of this, we face persecution. Now, since this is the case, our thinking must be shaped by what God has said. For in order for, to, for, in order for us to live God-honoring lives, we must have a biblical worldview when it comes to persecution. Because if we don't, we will cultivate and adopt a worldly one. And this is vital for what we believe informs how we think, how we speak, and how we live. Now, if you would, please take a look at the graphic up on screen. Um, one more. One more. There we go. Uh, for those of you just finishing up school, I apologize if this triggers you and you see math symbols up there. Um, but biblically, the Bible has something to say about what persecution is and what persecution is not. Okay? So to kind of put that in simple terms, put this together. So persecution does not equal God's will, as if it were some one-for-one -one reality. Because the world around us would tell us that if God is love, we wouldn't see these kind of bad things happen. Or if God was good, we wouldn't see evil in the world. Well, the Bible says something different. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, which is what we deserve, but have instead everlasting life. Now that doesn't sound like someone who is cruel, who is mean-spirited or harsh. No, God is merciful, kind, loving, just, holy, and so much more. Yes, he judges sin, but he's not vindictive. And so no, persecution is not equal to God's will. Secondly, the Bible shows us that persecution is not greater than God's will. If you think to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 40, in that portion, uh, God speaks through the prophet to the people to remind them that there is no one, no thing like God. There's no rival will to God. There's no, no one besides him. And as such, everything that we see in life is a result of God's direct activity or allowance. He is sovereign. And so this drives home, drives us to our final point. If persecution is not equal to God's will, and it's not greater than God's will, persecution must be less than God's will. Persecution must be subordinate to it. All right, think of Job. Not your jobs, think of Job, okay? In the book of Job, we see God, he, it opens up with God calling together the angelic host. And there's this conversation that happens between God and Lucifer or Satan. And God opens up and says, have you, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? How there's no one like him. Satan shoots back. Well, of course there's no one like him. You protect him on every side and you bless him beyond all measure. God says, okay. Fine. I will take my hand of protection and my hand of blessing off of him. Do what you will, but you may not kill him. All right? A lot of things happen from there. Job's friends prove to be not the greatest of counselors. Um, he loses a lot. He faces a lot of pain and discomfort. But we say all of that to drive back to this simple reality that no matter what Job faced, no matter what Job endured, it was only up to a point according to what God permitted and what God allowed for Job's good and for the glory of God's name. And so we see that the Bible teaches us that per persecution is a means for God to accomplish his plans in human history and in our lives all according to his perfect will for his glory. Oh, it's the next one. Okay. There it is. Persecution is a means for God to accomplish his plans in human history and in our lives, all for and all according to his perfect will for his glory. And so God has purposes in our persecution. And Peter, in this first section, Again, calls us to consider him, to set our eyes on Christ. And he does this through two different questions. One, what has he said? And two, what is he worth? Let's read verses 12 through 14 again. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. 
as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. This fiery trial refers to a purification by fire. For some of the Marines in the room, the idea of a crucible may sound very familiar, right? Because when working with raw metals, these raw ores are placed in a iron pot and heated to a certain point where those metals break down and those impurities rise to the top. Then the gold or silversmith, whoever's doing the work, will take their tools and they will skim those impurities and that dross off and they'll discard it. What's left? A more pure, more refined, more valuable precious metal. We see this illustrated in the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verse 3. It reads, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. You know, people of our day and age can be very concerned with what will help them uh, make a quick buck or what will help them to get ahead in life. But God is not focused on just the here and the now. God is focused on eternity. What makes you better now and what makes you better for eternity? And so God allows, God brings, God directs fiery trials, persecution your way to heat you up, to break you down, to help you realize you need him, but by God's grace you have him and he'll see you through to make you ultimately look more like Jesus. And so Peter tells us to think about these fiery trials as reasons to rejoice, just like Jesus did. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, first question, what has he said? Jesus said rejoice. When? When persecuted. Why? Because you're walking in the footsteps of the prophets, of anyone and everyone who has entrusted their lives to God for his glory, regardless of the pain and the shame and the persecution that might, be there, that might come their way. He is worth it. Verses 15 and 16 will help us answer that second question. What is he worth? The passage reads, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, <clears throat> an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now the word let is interesting. It conveys the idea of allowing something to happen. And Peter uses it here as a command. And he informs us that each of us has a personal responsibility, both individually and corporately. Let's read 15 again. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. <clears throat> 
Peter cautions his readers against four legitimate threats. Because if you or I give ourselves over to anger, murder becomes a real possibility. If I'm focused on lust and envy, I may become a thief. Concern myself too deeply with the things of this world, and soon we find ourselves living for its self-centered evils. Lose sight of our identity in Christ, and meddling in other people's affairs becomes second nature. Each of us are responsible to maintain our Christian walk as we live in this world, right? Each one of us have to do business with God, right? In addition to this, as brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the same local body of believers, should we not also care about showing love towards one another? I hope so. And so humbly, gently, by God's grace, helping to prevent each other from going down that same path towards destruction and discomfort and bringing shame on the name of Christ? Yeah. Again, it's loving others, not legalism. It's about showing love. Is it easy? No. Comfortable? No. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? Without question. If we fail to do this hard work, we will and we do bring shame to the name of Christ. Verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. You know, verse 15 showed us that there is shame in a Christian suffering as a sinner. However, there's no shame in a Christian suffering as a Christian. As we see in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles were warned, you know, after Christ was crucified, resurrected, uh, they were warned by the religious leaders, do not go around speaking in his name. And so what do they do? We ought to obey God rather than men, right? And so they march out and they start giving that good word. And what happens? They get locked up. They get imprisoned. Some time goes by. Later, they're released. You think they've learned their lesson? No. And so they get right back at it. And they get imprisoned again. This time, the religious leaders are infuriated. How dare they not listen to us? How dare they not respect our authority when we told them not to say these things? And so what do they do? They bring them out and they beat them publicly. Being put to public pain and shame for their faith in Christ. How do the disciples respond? If you drop down to the end of Acts chapter 5, in verses 41 and 42, you read these words. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Is he worth it? They thought he was. Do we? Did they stop? No. It almost seems like it fanned the flames of their fervor, right? And they went all the harder. Daily in the temple, every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. 
Peter's life and his words remind us that suffering on account of our Christian faith is a good thing. Not pleasant, good. Paul would echo this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, where he writes, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? Brothers and sisters, being persecuted, being ostracized, being dismissed, verbal threats, beatings, or whatever may happen, these are things that we do. Why? Because Christ died to set us free. He is worth our lives. And so standing for Christ may cost you something, but it will always be worth it. In this first section, Peter has called us to consider him and to represent the one who died to secure our eternity. This brings us to section two, verses 17 through 18. Peter calls us to check ourselves. Verse 17 reads, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Peter drives on. He speaks directly, and rightly so, because God will hold each and every one of us to the same standard. It's kind of like a baking show, right? Uh, any fans of the great British baking show or Iron Chef or things like that, right? I see some heads nodding. I appreciate that. Um, and so each contestant, you know, from whatever area of life they come, they are given the same recipe, the same equipment, the same amount of time, and what's expected of them. Same result. Now, if you've watched any of these for a period of time, you know that not everything always goes to plan. And so someone will misread the recipe, bake something too long or too short, or something else will happen. Then what? Next comes the judgment. And so up walks the judge who wrote the recipe, who knows what he expects to see, to smell, to taste, he grabs his fork, leans over, looks in, takes that bite, sometimes chokes it down, and he looks up and he renders his judgment. What will he say? You failed. Failed. Not because he didn't like you, because he's in a bad mood, or because she did it better. No. You failed because you didn't follow the recipe. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to living a God-honoring life, we have the recipe. Some of you right now have recipes on loan. Each of you, uh, either on your phones and your tablets, the Bibles you hold, this is the recipe for God-honoring living. And if we follow the recipe, we won't commit murder. We won't be thieves or busybodies. We won't live like the world or for the world. And so we don't need to fear judgment. We just need to follow the recipe. Amen? But not everybody has the recipe. 
and not everybody who has it follows it. Let's look at 17 and 18 again. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The righteous is scarcely saved? But I mean, I go to church every Sunday. I tithe. I give offerings. I support VBS. Man, my, my grandfather was a pastor. We can come up with all kinds of man-centered reasons as to why we're good enough. But are we? No. What did it take? Jesus had to die on the cross, the perfect, spotless lamb, offering his life in place of our guilty selves once for all time, for all people, if they will have it. The righteous is scarcely saved, not even by the skin of our own teeth, but simply, solely, and entirely by what Christ has done. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what awaits the ungodly and the sinner? We know, don't we? We don't want to think about it, but we know. For the one who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, what awaits them is everlasting joy and wonder. This is a rock-solid truth because Jesus' death on the cross to pay for sin secured that. At the same time, for those not trusting in Christ, what awaits them is everlasting regret and torment. By refusing Christ, your guilt remains your responsibility and you remain an enemy of God. It's possible that some, even in this room, might still be on the wrong side of those railroad tracks. Aside from Jesus, every person who has ever lived has been an enemy of God. But those who trust in Christ are forgiven and brought into the family of God. Jesus' death makes forgiveness possible. And if you're not forgiven right now, you can be forgiven today. If you have questions or concerns or you'd just like to chat, hang around after service. There will be some people up front who would love to talk to you. And so Peter presses us hard because Peter knows what's at stake. You know, with this in view, what kind of men, what kind of women should we be? Think about that. This brings us to our third and final section. So far, Peter has called us to consider him. Having done so, he calls us to check ourselves so that we may commit fully. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This is Peter's last call. He wraps up this section as he prepares to shift gears and discuss another matter. But before doing so, he gives one final plug 
You know, Peter assumes that we've taken his cautions against those four threats seriously. And so he only takes the time to discover, discuss suffering according to God's will, to the will of God. And he calls us to commit our souls to him in doing good. This sounds very similar to what we read in Psalm 37, verses 5 through 7. It reads, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Commit and trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth righteousness and justice. Do you notice the theme here? It's all about who God is and what God does, right? And on the basis of who God is and what God does, it grants us the confidence to rest in him and wait patiently. Why? Because as Peter said, ours is a faithful creator. Peter has told us time and again and again to expect hardship and to endure suffering. Today's passage is no different. Considering all of this, thinking about this, is what led me to title today's message, Embrace the Suck, right? Because for only as you and I embrace the sun unconditionally, courageously, and knowingly, can we or will we be able to face persecution, distress, frustration, and all the obstacles that life throws our way because of our faith. And so I invite you and remind you to embrace the sun. Because only when we do that can we live the kind of God-honoring lives that we should. Only when we do that can we love others as Christ would have us to. Today's passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19, gave us a reminder that all of us needed to hear and need to hear regularly. Since we have a wonderful Savior, let us consider him, check ourselves, and commit fully to living for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you and there is none beside you. The sooner we get a hold of that, the more readily we hold on to that, the better prepared we are to live in this life when frustration is in icebergs and all kinds of problems can come our way. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the many uh, examples of faithfulness in the past, for your indwelling spirit now and all of the other multiple and manifold gifts that you give us. Father, we thank you for the leaders here. We thank you for Pastor Rick, who will be preaching uh, to Calvary Chapel San Antonio tomorrow. Would you watch over him? Father, may we all look to Christ. Having looked at Christ and seen our great Savior, may we humbly walk before you and among one another 
committing fully, Lord, to the great and high calling that you have put before us. We thank you in Christ's name.